I think what I really am interested in is tension. When I have to do the blood and gore, it's more like, okay, well, now we have to do the blood. But it's not something that really gets my heart racing in the way that making people uncomfortable or showing uncomfortable things does. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror star creators. The terror begins right after this. Eli Ross' History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Download the app or visit Shudder.com to begin your seven-day free trial. Mary Heron has always been a trailblazer. In her youth, she worked on the seminal New York underground magazine, Punk, and became the first journalist to interview the Sex Pistols for an American publication. She spent the 80s in London, working as a drama and music critic, then made documentaries for the BBC. In 1996, she released her first feature, the well-received I Shot Andy Warhol. Her second film, released in 2000, was American Psycho, Mary mined Brett Easton Ellis' controversial novel for every ounce of satirical gold, delivering what may be the smartest, most thematically rich slasher film ever made. In this interview with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga, Mary discusses that movie, her life as a feminist director in a male-dominated industry, and why horror is the last haven for maverick filmmakers. Starting off, what are your thoughts on how women are portrayed in horror films? You know, I don't think that women have been portrayed worse in horror than they have in other movies. I mean, I think that women, for instance, in the 1950s were portrayed, or 60s were portrayed a lot worse in mainstream Hollywood movies. And it was much more patronizing, you know. You know, the main theme of a Hollywood movie is a woman has some ambition, you know, to be president, to be a, to be a great actress, to be a doctor, whatever, and decide, realizes that that isn't where her happiness lies and she should give up her, her work and stay home and be a wife and mother. I don't think that horror movies were doing anything as oppressive as that. So if you look at the Roger Corman movies of the 60s, yes, it's all about, there's a lot of female terror. There's a lot of women running around (laughs) shrieking. But there's our classic fairy tales of, you know, people being um, under threat. So I didn't see those as a kid and think, feel oppressed by, I felt more oppressed looking back by the mainstream Hollywood movies that sort of put down women's ambition. You know, a lot of women do feel under threat. As a woman, physically, you always feel somewhat under threat. You know, if you're in a room full of men, you are less physically powerful. So fear and an understanding of any woman traveling alone, you know, that's something that you live with your whole life, usually just sort of unconsciously. 
but fear, I think, is why a lot of women do like horror, because fear is something that's part of your life. And it allows you just a place to explore those, those threats. When we were filming American Psycho and doing the last big murder scene, when he kills the two women and there's the chainsaw and all that, and it was a very difficult shoot. We were shooting at night, even though we were on a stage, and it went on for like three days of the shooting, this scene. And I realized that the fear of, that a, a woman has of going on a date or going to a guy's apartment and something bad happening or him suddenly transforming from one kind of person into another is, is a very strong female fear. And that, in a way, movies are a way of exploring those fears. And that what we're doing is you're reliving or you're expressing a nightmare or a hidden fear that you have, almost an unconscious fear. And you're going out and really, really living it, like portraying it. And, and that there's a cathartic thing in that. You said that your parents used to take you to see films that weren't always age appropriate. Did you see any horror films that made an impression on you? My parents took me to a lot of art movies that a 10-year-old wasn't supposed to. You know, I saw Bergman and Fellini and films like that. But I did see Rosemary's Baby at an early age. And Polanski, I think, is very imprinted on my consciousness as a filmmaker. What is it about that film that makes it such an effective picture? One of the things I really love about horror and the, the nightmares that it touches on are the idea of, of security and a stable, normal place that turns out to be a place of danger or a person who seems to be a friendly person. And of course, one of the greatest things in Rosemary's Baby is the neighbors. And, the, um, the, the, and what's great is that those, com those performances, which are basically comic performances, you know, have the chocolate mouse, you know. Um, and th they're comic performances that, that, that are very well pitched that then turn into being very frightening. And, and the, the most kind of humorous people are the most dangerous in that film. One of the many great things about Rosemary's Baby is its strict use of point of view. It really puts you in the head that this woman has fallen into a terrible trap. When I saw Rosemary's Baby when I was very young, I don't think I thought, oh, this is female consciousness. But obviously, there aren't that many movies from within a young woman's point of view, within her perspective where she's trying to figure out where the danger is or who you can trust, which in a way is what all people are trying to do and <laughs> young people growing up, you know, who can I trust or, you know, where am I in the world? So her, her uncertainty, the instability of her um, position you know, really affected me. And obviously we know Polanski's guilty of all these things in his personal life, but as a filmmaker, he's incredibly sympathetic to the female point of view. And the relationship between Rosemary and her husband is fantastic. And the idea of this egocentric uh, guy who will do anything and sacrifice her for his ambition, you know, it, it, in a way it's like, girls watch out for young actors like this, you know? Um, and he's totally, it's totally sympathetic to her and seeing how she's being exploited. And that also, this is another thing that I think young women would really can relate to in Rosemary's Baby. No one believes her. No one takes her seriously. You know, of course they believe the husband or they believe, you know, the, the doctors or they, you know, they believe other authority figures, but no one is listening to her. So her opinion is, is completely invalid. Looking at it as a director, visually, what's interesting about how Polanski shot that film? The story is that he shot that almost entirely on one lens. I love the way he used wide-angle lenses. And in fact, when I met with Andre Sekula about American Psycho, I said, well, there's two people. It's Polanski and Kubrick. And he said, well, I'm Polish, so I, I naturally shoot like this. <laughs> you know? 
in Rosemary's Baby, it's very wide angles and placing her within a setting with the apartment's kind of a character too. It also isolates her within this space and the apartment itself becomes increasingly sinister. Before Rosemary's Baby, Polanski directed another classic, Repulsion. What are your thoughts on that? I didn't see Repulsion until I was grown up and I've seen it, you know, several times since. And now it seems to be one of the most prophetic films because it is about sexual abuse and it is about the um, madness triggered. You know, at the very end, you see a, a photo of her and you realize that this is all coming from obviously a traumatic childhood of abuse and that the anger that she has and the desire to act out, I felt like that's a very, a film very much ahead of its time that, you know, uh, victims can become killers. And that's something that, um, I was just done Alias Grace about a girl who's abused who may or may not be a murderer. But it's important to remember that, that victims can, can, be, can turn. <laughs> a lot of the time, maybe um, in the male view of, of women in cinema is, is, is women as victims staying victims. But there is a whole category of films in horror of women turning. And, and it's, there's a kind of an important message to send. Like, don't think you can just abuse people safely. Well, let's talk about the advantages of working in the horror genre. It's often looked down on, but does working in that space give you more freedom to be expressive and transgressive? I think that horror is, is more like a free area, um, you know, because art films are re particularly respectable kind of more, more middle-brow films. You know, you have to have a moral point of view. You have to be uplifting. You have to send a message. And horror doesn't demand any of that, which I love about it. And it allows you a more free place to be really extreme or mixed satire and horror. And the other thing I love about horror is that you can have an unhappy ending. I remember when we were pitching American Psycho and somebody uh, in one of the meetings said to me, are people going to leave this movie thinking the world's a better place because they've seen it? And I thought, no, I... I really hope not. That would be very inappropriate. <laughs> and, and nobody says that about You're not going to a horror movie to think the world's a better place. You're going to have an experience and to have your nightmares, you know, recreated. And I think that you only feel the world's a better place because if it's a really good movie, then the world's a better place because there's a, a really good movie in it, but not because you've been given some uplifting message. But I feel also when I'm around horror people, that horror people are really nice. And it's an important thing to remember. They're super nice and they're much less pretentious and much less full of themselves. And there's a more camaraderie because in those areas, it's also true of documentary people, the areas that are less prestigious, you know, and being given, you know, Academy Awards are, are actually more democratic and, and friendly <laughs> and people help each other. There are many definitions of horror. Uh, some people think it means gore. Others think suspense. Some think the supernatural. What does it mean to you? Well, I think that horror is about nightmare. And it allows you to go and experience your nightmares. And it's cathartic in a way, in a very deep level, that you don't get necessarily in any other area. And you get great filmmakers like David Cronenberg or David Lynch, who I think both have strong elements of horror. And they are the great modern surrealists, I think. And their, and their film, you know, they've both worked in things that you can categorize as horror. One of the great advantages of horror is in the way that B-movies used to be in the 50s and 60s, they're a freer area. 
Um, there's less monitoring of them. I feel kind of freer when I'm working in that area because I know that if you fulfill certain requirements of, of creating enough suspense or fear, then you have a lot of creative freedom and you can, a lot of artistic license, more than you would get in a more conventional drama. And I don't, I think there's less supervision. So it's a very fertile creative area and, and, and things constantly get, in a way, film can get regenerated or, or television get regenerated regenerated through the medium for and, and look at get out is there a better statement on race relations in america i don't think so you know what what else? and and that's totally pushed the push the bar on satire and horror and, and and cut very deep at the same way as being entertaining uh, what's great about lynch i think is that so much of it seems to spring straight from his subconscious and then gets filtered through his artistic sensibility so twin peaks the return is tons of horror imagery it's steeped in horror. You know, all that stuff in the motel room. So you're just filled with dread the whole time. Oh, you know, even the very first episode when they find that body. Oh, my God, the body that doesn't match the head. <laughs> I'm so scared. Only David Lynch would think of that. So I feel like it's, it's, um, it's like it's ritual, too. I mean, it's like the ancient civilizations all have versions of horror because anything where they're using something that represents a body or a, a mock sacrifice or a mock, those are, those are horror rituals. That's what's very attractive. Interesting. It goes very deep and very primal. I think what I really am interested in is tension. That's actually the thing that I'm most interested in. In a weird way, I'm most comfortable doing a scene where it's very awkward. And it could be just like a really awkward bad date. I was like, oh good, I can do this real awkward silences. And Or in American Psycho, there's a lot of bad dates in American Psycho. Like my favorite scene is actually when he has the two prostitutes come over and there's this really awkward social situation and you're not sure something terrible is going to happen. And and, um, he's trying to talk to them about how, you know, he works in investment banking. It's just a very fun, awkward scene, followed by an extremely awkward sex scene. Uh, and I think I, I like, I'm interested in that more than actually showing, when I have to do the blood and gore, it's more like, okay, well, now we have to do the blood. But it's not something that really gets my heart racing in the way that making people uncomfortable or showing uncomfortable things does. <laughs> I mean, it's just as, as weird and perverse to want to show discomfort as it is to show blood. It's just, just whatever appeals to you. Briefly, what's the plot of American Psycho? American Psycho, based on the notorious novel by Brett Easton Ellis, is about a young, wealthy businessman in New York in the 80s who seems to be have a perfect life. So he's very handsome. He has a perfect apartment. He has a you know a high-paying job. And in his spare time, he dismember, he he seeks for victims and dismembers them and, and has these sort of orgies of violence. So it's about someone whose life is full of perfect surfaces and who is so filled with sort of rage and emptiness that he disembowels young women. I thought of American Psycho as being in a way all the worst aspects of the 1980s, you know, the uh, sort of rapacity of the financial rapaciousness and the obsession with, with uh, you know, surfaces and food and being perfect looking. And it, just all the, you know, American vulture capitalism at the end of the 20th century. And it's all expressed in this person who looks good but is actually a monster. On the surface, American Psycho is a slasher serial killer movie, but it kind of subverts the tropes of the genre. 
Yeah, I like to say that my specialty is taking a popular form and making it less popular. So if you look at American Psycho, it's a serial killer film, right? Sort of like a, a slasher film. But at the end, you know, you're not, it's leaving you in a complete state of uncertainty. You're supposed to kind of have somebody unmasked and punished. And to give away the ending to those who haven't seen it, he's not punished at the end. So you're not giving the audience that satisfaction, actually. But I felt like the satirical and also the moral point of Brett Easton Ellis's book was that he wouldn't get found out because society didn't care to find him out. Society just didn't care as long as he conformed to the perfect you know, surfaces and perfect uh, stereotypes um, of, of the successful businessman. No one would bother to, to look at what he really was doing. Despite the fact that he desperately wants to be caught. Yes, and in a way, his punishment is that he can't get caught because no one cares enough. Society doesn't care enough to punish him. Patrick Bateman is such a sad character. Yes, and when, when Christian and I were in preparation for American Psycho, you know, we talked about him as being like a, a Martian, someone from another planet who doesn't know how to be a human being. And there's a great scene with Willem Dafoe, which I think we, we shot on the very first day of, of filming, where he's having lunch with Willem Dafoe, who plays the detective. And Christian's doing this thing where he's watching him. <laughs> he really took this to heart, this idea of he's constantly trying to work, work out how to be a human being. So Christian's watching what Willem's doing as he's eating, and you know, Willem does this and Christian does that. You know, it's just, it's just great. It's all the little details of, of someone who just doesn't know how to be a person. And when Bateman's going, going to have sex with somebody, he watches a porno movie. You know, he's constantly looking for clues. And uh, when we're in pre-production, Christian rang me up one day and he said, there was this old copy of Playboy and it had an ad that said, man at his best. And I think that there's certain modes where Patrick Bateman's trying to be man at his best. So when the two prostitutes come for like the date, he said, I want to wear a tuxedo and I'm going to be like trying to be suave. And it's man at his best. But, of course, it all goes wrong because the girls just never live up to his expectations. So, obviously, he then has to act out. You once said you're not a moralistic filmmaker. What did you mean by that? Well, I think that, you know, obviously you want to be moral as a person. But, you know, Bunuel said you be moral in your life, not in your art. And I think, I feel like my job is to explore a subject and explore the, the, the situation, not, not to tell people what to think and not to give people a sort of neatly encapsulated message that they take away with them. You know, so I'm not going to overtly say, you know, sexism is bad or racism is bad. I think if you have a truthful story, they'll take lessons away with them. But I think that a lot of Hollywood films want to make their messages very overt and kind of tell you what to think or tell you what's right and wrong. And in a way, that's, you know, that just is less interesting. And it's more like, uh, you know, making everything pat. Those are the films they tend to honor, the ones with the billboarded messages. Yes, I mean, I, th I think the films that tend to get sort of the, the awards love are, um, have, you know, slogans, and you can come out and say exactly what the attitudes were in those films and what message you should take away from them. And I think that the most interesting things are more contradictory and ambiguous, and, and you have to go on a journey. What's the message in a David Lynch film? Who knows, you know? But you've been on a journey. Why was a serial killer movie, or at least American Psycho, a great vehicle for satirizing 80s narcissism and excess? When I read American Psycho, the novel, I thought this is, this is a brilliant work of satire, mixed in with episodes of horrifying violence. But to me, it was the satire 
that I loved. And it made me laugh out loud, all the scenes in restaurants and the absurdity. And, and also that Patrick Bateman was so absurd. The character was so pathetic and absurd. And th there was very little real cutting-edge satire about that period that really, really nailed it. And I felt that was what, what drew me to it more than the violence, more than the... It, it's just using the, the idea of a serial killer as a vehicle, I think. The novel American Psycho was much vilified. Your film version of it was criticized, but generally speaking, I think it was much better received. And certainly now its status has risen greatly. So when it premiered at Sundance, people didn't know what to make of American Psycho. You know, should we laugh? Are we allowed to laugh? Is it wrong for me to laugh? And, you know, my little group of people, Christian and me and the editor, we were all laughing away, you know, but but nobody uh, knew what to do or how to, what to make of it. And so for a couple of years, I remember it was rotten on Rotten Tomatoes for a couple of years, I think. And then gradually it just crept up. And and now I, I, I don't meet anyone who doesn't like it, which amazes me because like, really, when it came out, loads of people didn't like it. But somehow people have come round. Do you think they get the humor better than they did at the time? I think once people realize that, yes, it is in a way a satire, then you can look at it from a completely different direction. And then, and then the, it becomes, I guess, a different film for you. But I think anything that mixes genre has a rough time at first. And even Get Out, which was a huge hit. But I feel like it's harder for people and critics and whoever to approach something that mixes, crosses category is both satire and horror and social commentary. Maybe Jordan Peele was in the position where everybody knew he was funny, but they didn't know his other sides. Yes, I think with Jordan Peele, I think they were expecting humor and probably some social commentary, but they were more probably surprised by the horror. American Psycho is originally rated NC-17. Why is that? And what does that tell us about our culture? It's funny, we had a long, um, long back and forth with uh, the ratings board. And initially, they, they said, what was the problem? They said the tone of the entire movie was the problem. But then when it came down to it, it was the three-way sex scene. It wasn't um, chainsaws or axe murders or anything. It was the three-way sex scene. And, uh, we, and it's funny because the three-way sex scene kind of makes not even any anatomical sense. I mean, it's so absurd, that scene. And we did it in a sort of, you know, humorous spirit, really. Like, we're going to do the most absurd sexual positions and and also the whole it's the least sexy scene in the world that three-way sex because he's looking at himself in the mirror while he's having sex so it's obviously <laughs> it's jokey it's not erotic I think but anyway people were they were bothered by that so I had to end up just trimming frames trimming little bits out and 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 there's still three-way sex scene in there but it's just I think you know rear entry sex I think was considered an issue so we trimmed some of that out but but no not nothing about the murders. So it's America. You know. <laughs> yes, America. You know. Was it important that a woman should direct American Psycho? Yeah, I think it was very important that a woman direct American Psycho, and and also that my co-writer Guinevere Turner was was a woman and. I had just come off doing Aisha Andy Warhol about the most radical of radical feminists, Valerie Solanas, and Gwyn had come off doing Go Fish, which was, you know, the first sort of, you know, popular lesbian comedy, romantic comedy. So we both felt like if we don't, if we can't approach this material with confidence, who can? You know, we're, don't tell us about feminism. We, you know, we know about feminism. And then we enjoyed what we celebrated in the book was it's a fantastic satire on masculinity and masculine, masculine privilege, and how this group of Wall Street bankers 
behave as if they were the cliched version of teenage girls. They're vain, they're competitive, they're obsessed with their weight and their appearance and then, you know, their diet. And so we just just went to town on that. We really enjoyed that. And and in terms of of, of a woman's point of view, I mean, it, to me, it was very important. One thing that I did do that I think uh, was a change was in the scenes where Christy, the prostitute, brilliantly played by Kara Seymour, I, I cast a great actress who I knew could say a lot with very little dialogue, and that and that played um, those scenes, those two scenes in Bateman's apartment that she's in, particularly the big last big sort of uh, you know violent murder scene, played it off her and off her face. So it's really the point of view is her point of view, and it was important to me that you you were not seeing those murders because there is a definitely a chance of eroticizing the murders if you're doing looking at them through the murderer's point of view. And then it becomes like desirable, you know, this is the desirable prey. But I wanted Bateman to be the object of fear in those scenes. And he's the, he's the nightmare and the fear. The murders in slasher films usually shot very fetishistically from the point of view of the killer. Yes. And so, so to me, it was a political point and a conscious one. I don't, you know, that I would reverse that. And that rather than being, you know, the erotic pursuit of the sexual erotic, you know, murder, uh, it would be the fear. And that they would be some nightmarish thing coming at you. And the emotion that you would, you would be left with was fear and then loss, regret when you saw Christy dead. You wanted her to get away. You know, and it's all about her fear and her, and she almost gets away. And then you're left with the sadness of her death. And I, I wanted to make that real and make that disturbing. And that's one reason why the film is disturbing. And it's disturbing because you care about the victim, you know? And, and that's, to me, that's a moral point. You know, it's a movie, but they're real people being killed. You want to care about them. Patrick Bateman is essentially a monster wearing a human mask. In the end, again, when we were trying to get it financed, people said, well, you know, why can't you have show scenes from his childhood or tell more about him? And I said, See, it doesn't matter what his, it doesn't matter if his parents were mean to him. That's not an excuse. He's a deformed human being. He's a monster. Case closed. You don't need to know about his childhood or, you know, have some psychoanalyzing of him. It's, it's a monster. It, and the movie is about the effects he has in the same way that Frankenstein's about a monster at, at loose in the world. And I understood it much better once, once I, I realized that it was a monster movie. And, then, and that kind of freed me from, from all those objections of people saying, can't you say more about why he's like that? He is the way he is. It's like he's the, he's the way he is, you know, and that's the premise when we start with that. I also think in modern horror films, there's too much of uh, maybe that maybe this is a product of screenwriting classes. That oh. There's so much backstory. Oh, there's, yeah, unfortunately, you know, I didn't go to film school, so maybe I'm lucky uh, that I, I think that people now are trained and, and certainly studios ask for enormous amounts of explanation and backstory about why people do things. And if you think of a lot of like the great 19th century novels, there was no psychology. People did things because they did things. You know, there's, there's much less of that, you know, searching for motivation. It's more about what happens in the effects of action. Well, how much do you have to explain? I mean, you look at Hitchcock's notes, and he usually worked out a psychological profile of his characters, but he didn't feel compelled to have flashbacks showing it at all to you. The one place where he really does do that, and it probably saved his bacon, is at the end of Psycho, when the psychiatrist comes in. It was a completely ludicrous explanation, really. But, um, and it, it, it's kind of comic, and it, it, it does harm the film a little bit. 
but it probably saved him from being savaged because he gave a bit of a respectable psychological view and allowed people to say, ah, well, it's about this. It's about an aberration because of the... And of course, in, in, in that era of the 60s, everybody, everything was always blaming the mother, you know, like bad mothering was, was a big motive, like rebel without a cause, the bad mother. So, you know, it allowed people to, to come away with a sort of answer. I interviewed Tippi Hedren for this as well. Oh, wow. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love the birds as well. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the birds. What I love about the birds is there's no answer. And you never know why it's happening. And that makes it so incredibly frightening. And that, I think, is a film that bears relooking because it's another kind of ecological horror. Like the natural world is turning on us because we have mistreated it in some way. Hitchcock felt no burning desire to explain why the birds were rising up. No, I just reread that, you know, the original story by Daphne du Maurier. And, the, and that is a very brief story. And it's so frightening because there's no reason for why they've turned, why the birds have suddenly turned. Because it was a Hollywood blockbuster, you did it. There would be tons of reasons and answers and be boring stories and people, scientists in rooms explaining why the birds had turned. It's like, really, we don't really, you know. What's great about horror movies is that it has fewer of those scenes that you just have to sit through in a mainstream movie where things are explained to you. Backstories delivered, people in, you know, doctor's coats, whatever, explain things. And, and a lot of the way, time horror movies can, can just remove that and just get straight to cut to the chase, you know. American Psycho, we see Patrick Bateman working out to the final moments of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Why did you reference that? Movie? Because um, it, it's that thing of, you know, if, you're, if he's going to have sex, he'll watch a porno movie. If he's going to uh, commit a murder, he's going to watch a, a famous horror movie. Just learn, out how, learn how it's done. And so it's like he's getting lessons from what he's watching. So everything is informed by media. <laughs> Yeah, everything's important, but also to me, it's also a little joke. Um, I remember being in in England during the the, the video nasties craze of uh, you know a moral panic that videos videos of horror movies were turning our young people crazy. And so it's like, okay, well here's a video of a horror movie is turning somebody crazy. Yeah, he's going to watch it, and then he's just going to go and do an axe murder or chainsaw mur- do a chainsaw murder, just like just like the movie showed him how. So it's my little satire on that. They used to be such a big thing, blaming everything on movies and television. Is that still the case? I wouldn't say that movies or, or TV or the internet or whatever don't have any effect on the people who watch things. But people did watch public executions, you know, in the 19th century. There were horrible uh, public torture. And people, it's not like people didn't do awful things to each other before electronic media. Watch lynchings. Yeah, we're great public entertainment, yeah. For children, let's bring the kids, yeah, so. How did you get your head around the chainsaw murder scene? So because I had a debate with everybody, and I remember having, um, I was determined that he should, even though everyone kept telling me how unrealistic it was, and I knew it was, that he should drop the chainsaw down a spiral staircase and it should impale her. And even though I know 
as was explained to me, that it wouldn't really happen that way. It's like, you know, well, in the end, who cares? It's, it's going to look great. And, and it did. <laughs> was American Psycho purposely referencing or engaging with other slasher films that came before it? Yes, of course. Yes. I mean, when Cara Seymour is um, running down the hallway, you know, and it's a joke because she's in underwear. In a way, it's kind of, you know, that's girls are scantily clad. Girls are always running away from uh, terrible killers. But in this case, so it's referencing that, but it's also switching it so it's very much with her and, and more real. Her emotions are more real. You're with them. And you're, I hope that you're totally totally involved with her and identifying with her, not with the killer. The killer's just some terrible anonymous thing running after her. And also the other funny thing is that she's dressed in a door, but he's naked or actually had some kind of sock and a lot of blood spattering. But, you know, I thought the, in this case, the guy's going to be naked and the girl will have some clothes on, which is funny. This is the reverse of what's usually true. Why do serial killers fascinate people? You know, I don't, I honestly don't know why, uh, what this obsession with serial killer is because I get so many serial killer scripts and there's so many TV things about serial killers. I, I don't know that I have an answer. I mean, it's, it's unless it's a part of the anxiety of modern life. I mean, anxiety of, of something coming out of nowhere, of, of living in cities, living in, that something can come at you that you don't and you'll never know what it is or who it is. I mean, and actually funny, because I loved Manhunt, Mindhunter. I just watched every episode. I thought it was fantastic. When I started watching Mindhunter, I thought, oh, you know, can you really get anything more out of this? And well, yes, you can, actually. And, and the study and the, and the pursuit of the idea of the anonymous killer. And I, get, I guess it remains a, a, a terror because it comes from out of nowhere and there's no way of, of guarding against it. I think that's something that will always frighten us. And also never being sure if you can trust other people? The nicest people and the most disturbing thing. One of, and one of the most disturbing serial killers in history is the BTK killer. The guy who was installing alarms in your house. And the most kind of, you know, sort of anonymous nerdy person. You know, the guy who's arguing with, with his neighbors about, you know, I don't know, the lawn or whatever. You know, he's like this very, very kind of anal guy. And, and, and you would just never look at him twice. And he's coming to your house. To, to make you more safe. <laughs> so I'm terrified by this. I find that, in a way, that's the worst nightmare. And it's very, very well portrayed in Mindhunter. attracts you to a project? Do you look for social commentary, the emotions, the visual possibilities? When I'm considering a project, all that really matters to me is not its social relevance or blah, blah. It's really just, does it excite me? And does it get my imagination working? Does it seem fresh or original? And really the, the main deciding factor is, as I'm reading it, do I start to direct the film in my head? Do I start to see it in my head? And if I do, that means I should do it. If I don't, if it doesn't kind of jump off the page, then I won't do it. You came up at a time when female directors were a rarity. How did you manage to punch through the barriers? As a woman director, certainly when I was coming up and even now, you just have to be incredibly persistent. And 
and not let um, other people's lack of interest in your work uh, deter you. And to me, what saved me, I think, was that I, for like seven years, I, ha I wanted to make a film about Valerie Solanas, um, which became my first film, I shot Andy Warhol, because I read her Scum Manifesto. And this was a woman that people were very scared of making a film about and said, oh, but you know, this manifesto showed she's crazy and she, she shot this famous artist. But I felt, well, she's crazy but brilliant, and her story is so interesting. And she, her story deserves to be told as much as anyone else's, and no one else is going to tell it. And I got more and more obsessed with uncovering her life because there's so little written about her. And I was always obsessed with Warhol and the factory. So I think my fascination with the subject, I think if you're any kind of filmmaker, but probably particularly a, a woman starting out, is you have to have a, a subject that you care about so passionately that it will carry you through all the obstacles. You've made a movie with vampire themes. So what is it about vampires that appeals to you? Among the, the horror categories, the vampire one is the one that's most about love and human relationships and the way people possess each other, want to possess each other. And it's obviously a very flexible metaphor, you know, blood, sex. I just read the original novel, Dracula, a while back. And of, and of course, it's, it's so interesting that the fear of female sexuality that is so powerful in that novel, which is a wonderful book, actually. But, you know, the idea of uh, a woman trans after, after having had sex, basically, after having been bitten and then transforming into this ravenous sexual creature. It's, it's great. It's like so, it's great because horror allows you to really express your fears in a very obvious way. <laughs> you know, go to town on them. But now I think the vampire metaphor can be about what one person wanting to possess another, you know, wanting to take another person over. So I, I did a film called The Moth Diaries, which is about basically about really a film about teenage girls' friendships, but it's about one girl wanting to possess another or, or, or be, you know, take another person over. And then the vampire thing is also can be a metaphor for anorexia, for wasting away, for somebody being drained by another but it, it's a thing that teenage girls are obviously so prone to. Then there's Abel Ferrara's vampire movie, which is also, I think, was done, done at the time of, you know, there's a, there's a heroin metaphor in that. Uh, Larry Fessenden's film Habit is a, you know, heroin addiction metaphor. Um, but there's also AIDS, obviously, and the vampire becoming suddenly a symbol of our new fear of sex. But I guess my favorite one is I actually love, you know, the Nosferatu films. If I had to choose vampire films, the original Nosferatu, and I love Herzog's Nosferatu, which are just visually the most beautiful. I really loved Herzog's Nosferatu, and I th thought he got a really sort of European folktale quality to it. Of, remember the people doing the dance of death? He got a sense of the plague outside in the towns. I thought that it was, you know, such an... And then Kinski, you know. You'll never get a scarier, more wonderful vampire. There's a new cleaned up version of the 1922 Nosferatu going around that's really quite striking. Yeah, so I, th I think those, two, to me, the, the twin films. I, of course, there's been so many wonderful vampire films, but I think I, you know, that's the heart of it. That's the original story. It's also interesting how he's a stalker, the original. Yeah, he's the original stalker. The original scary stranger, you know, the original serial killer. You open your window and he... He's there. <laughs> so it's... But it's very much um, everybody's fear of sex, as, as well as the desire for sex and the desire for love. With anybody that I think is also very deep in the serial killer fear is that a sexual encounter can bring death. Sex and death being very entwined. 
It's interesting that although it borrows heavily from Dracula, the ending is so different. As usually the professor, the husband, saves the day and stakes the vampire. But in Nosferatu, it's the wife, the woman, who kills the vampire by sacrificing herself. Yes. So that's, I think, the most beautiful of the vampire death scenes. It's also, it's very strange because she's offering him her breast. It's a really strange, almost like a mother thing. It's almost like he's a baby or a child. It's very weird. (laughs) But scary. What drew you to the Moth Diaries? What I was interested in in Moth Diaries was not really doing a horror movie. I was interested in doing a film about teenage girl friendship and how obsessive it can be. And it's girls who are not ready for the the world of boys and men, particularly because they're enclosed in a boarding school. They're being kept away from men. And so they have all this incredibly passionate feelings that get turned into friendships that become obsessive. And then girls wanting to be like each other, and then girls becoming each other, and one girl admiring another and becoming her. And, and then this also being mixed up with another, the girl, the, the, the stranger, Ernesta, the kind of sort of a vampire figure, uh, taking over another girl and sucking the life out of her, taking her away from, the, from her best friend. So it's one of those love triangles that teenage girls often have, and the obsessive, obsessive and sometimes destructive friendships that they have. It's also about their rehearsing for love, you know, but they're also <laughs> doing it in a in a kind of dark way. But in some ways also, Mothar's, I think, is ultimately a ghost story, not a vampire story. There's a girl who was at the school, you know, whatever it was, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, who it's the idea of a girl who committed suicide. So Mothar's is also about anorexia and self-harming. And there's a girl in the past who committed suicide after she lost her father. So there's the idea of a girl whose father's committed suicide and the girl's obsessed with suicide. So there are all these things about ghosts in the past and and, and the things that we can't let go of. Uh, And in order to live, you have to let go of grief or, you know, stop turning your pain on yourself. There's there's a a lot lot of panorama of of teenage girl behavior there. And I had, um, I became interested in it because I had two daughters not that they went through such extreme things, but all girls go through things of obsessive friendships and, and all the rest. And I wanted just to make a film that was about young girls and their relationships with each other. And I know when we were trying to get financing, they said, if only you had had you know hot boys in this. But to me, it wasn't about them being in love with boys. It was about them being obsessed with each other. And there's just not very many films about female, young female friendship. When you think of your favorite ghost stories, ghost movies, what comes to mind? Well, I love uh, The Orphanage, and I love The Others. I love the Spanish movies that have been done recently. And I think ultimately then it's all Turn of the Screw, isn't it? Turn of the Screw being, you know, the, ar- the archetype. And they're very, I mean, Turn of the Screw is, is a ghost story and a sort of horror story that is very, very, uh, you never quite are sure what's really happened, except that there's a haunting of some kind. I think all ghost stories are about the past coming back. Yes, and I, th- I think in a way with Mothari's, it was about the, a girl who can't let go of her father's death and is being driven a little crazy by it. And the story of another girl in the same school, you know, 100 years ago, who killed herself after her father died. So there, there are those ideas of not being left able to, to let go of the past. But I agree, all ghost stories, we're all haunted by the past. We all can't let go of the past. And I think the idea also... 
of crimes in the past poisoning or haunting the present and coming back, that things don't stay buried. I think that's very turn of the screw too. Would you ever want to direct a ghost story? Yes, I love I love ghost stories. There's a British writer called M.R. James that I really kind of obsessed with who did amazing British ghost stories, and they're very subtle and creepy. So, yes, I, at some point I would love to do a ghost story. Any thoughts on Kubrick's version of The Shining? I guess The Shining's uh, one of the few horror movies that's about artistic crisis, isn't it? <laughs> about writer's crisis <laughs> and people being driven mad by their uh, inability to write. So I think it's kind of like a favorite film of anyone who's ever tried to write a a screenplay or a book or a story. I was very influenced visually as who could not be by The Shining and by the the incredible wide angles and the sense of a building uh, transforming into a place of horror, you know. So I think between that and Rosemary's Baby, those were two films that influenced me a lot on American Psycho, just the visuals. I just sort of had private references for those because it's about sort of beautiful beautiful wide-angle visions of rooms (laughs) with awful things happening. The Gothic tradition is rooted in Europe. Is there a uniquely American horror archetype? It's interesting because Batman's sort of Gothic, isn't it? That's that's American Gothic, I think. I mean, even Psycho has a little bit of, you know, the, the, the creepy house on the hill. There's certainly Gothic elements that creep into a lot of American horror, I think. I think you can argue that Night of the Living Dead is a fully American movie. Yeah, well, there's not gothic. Yeah, not gothic at all, yeah. No, no, and I think that actually the Living Dead movies, which are some of the greatest examples of sort of horrors, social commentary and horrors, very political horror, horrors, uh, you know, said things, you know, in in that arena that you couldn't always say. They were about race and class and all these things. And they're in very, you know, very contemporary worlds. And like the zombies are like, there's the cheerleader zombie, or there's there's able to use a lot of American archetypes. In fact, that there's when the ones in a shopping mall or, you know, yes, I think they're very modern American, sometimes suburban horror stories that don't owe anything to the British traditions of the 19th century or the European traditions. Sort of stripped of romance, really. Mm. Right? Yeah, they're very tough. I love the, I love the, those Living Dead movies because they're, um, the, it's interesting that the zombies are so popular because they're so dark. This, again, is like your family members becoming zombies, then you have to kill them. You know, there's nothing really at, at worse. <laughs> the entire world in a zombie movie is collapsing. All your friends, your neighbors, everybody is turning and collapsing on you. So it's it's interesting that it's, it's proved such a sort of a fertile topic now. I guess we're all very scared. That was the marvelous Mary Heron. Join us next time when our guest is Don Mancini. And be sure to subscribe to History of Horror Uncut on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga. Produced by Kurt Sayanga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Ogleboy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. 
Senior Producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Zanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. Cut.